Merry Christmas to you, dear brothers and sisters. Amen. Christmas morning is always a, a fun service for me as, as a preacher. Christmas Eve, I tend to think as a time more to think about the why, the, the what sort of happened for us at Christmas, an applicatory sermon. Right, to think about the meaning of Christmas, to think about the comfort and the promises and the peace and the joy that we find in Christmas. And then Christmas Day, as we come back and we gather together that morning, I find as a good opportunity to think about what we'd call in Christianity the doctrine that's being taught at Christmas time. What is the incarnation? What, who is this? As we sang the song, what child is this? Who is he? What did he come to do? What did he accomplish? How do we express those things? What's the language that we should use around such things? I find Christmas Day, the morning, to be a good time to, to really dive a little deeper into those truths. Uh, this morning, again, as I mentioned, our reading for the sermon is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. And the way I want to have us dive a little deeper this morning, consider some of those more uh, profound truths of Christmas, of the Incarnation, is uh, through the question I've got there in your, your bulletin. What does it mean to be God's son? And we're going to look at Paul's words here this morning and ask that question in two ways. One, what does it mean that, that Jesus is the Son of God, and then what is Paul saying when he talks about all of us as God's sons? Again, Paul said in our second reading there that when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son. That's Jesus. That's Christmas, the incarnation. Whether that specifically occurred on December 25th, there's good reason to think it happened around this time of year. There's also good reason that people suggest other dates. We're not in a sense, celebrating Jesus' birthday, right? There's not a cake on Christmas. We're celebrating the incarnation, the fact of it. Regardless of whether it was this day or another, we're celebrating God's Son incarnate. His Son was, as Paul says here, born of a woman, Mary. And that, that birth was the fulfillment of many promises that God had made. It was first the promise given to Eve, that one of her children would crush the serpent's head. Eve seems to have thought that her first son, Cain, was perhaps this, this Messiah, this Savior, this promised one. And somehow she came to the conclusion, no, that, that wasn't the case. And so her second son, she names Abel, which means uh, vanity, foolishness. It's the word that Solomon uses at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, if you know that book. Meaningless, meaningless. Abel, Abel, is what Solomon says there. Why did Eve give such a demeaning? Right? I, I don't know if you would ever name one of your children vanity, foolishness, meaninglessness. But Eve seems to be recognizing there, I was being vain. I was being foolish to think that that was an honor that, that I personally would get to carry this Savior and birth this Savior. No, vanity, foolishness, Eve says as she bears her second son. Years later, the promise would be given to Abraham and to Sarah that their offspring would possess the land of Canaan forever. And then to Judah, son of Jacob, the promise was made that the ruler's staff would never pass from his particular tribe to David of Judah's line. God promised that his son would sit on the throne forever. All of these people saw their particular promises coming true 
in the birth of this baby, who was a son in their family line. But what Paul says here is not that this baby was merely Eve's son, or Abraham and Sarah's, or Jacob, or Judah, or David's son. Paul calls this child God's son, born in the fullness of time. What does that mean, that this baby was God's son? Our gospel reading from John is one of the the fundamental texts in the scriptures for understanding the person of Jesus, his nature, who he is. John tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John goes on later in that reading to describe the incarnation. This is the language John uses around what happened at Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. This baby born at Christmas, whom John calls the one and only son, he also calls there the word. He says that this word had existed forever. He was already with God when the world was made, John says. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And when we think about the beginning, Genesis, we see that the word is what brought the universe into existence. God spoke and the word, God's word, brought forth all things. But John said one more important thing about the word there. The word was God. He says, God, God all throughout the Bible is very clearly stated to be one. And yet God is also clearly shown all throughout the Bible to exist as, we can use the word, a plurality. As this text and others speak of God in such terms. There was a word who was with God and who also was God. There are two entities spoken of here, both of whom are God. If the word is with God, yet is also God, we've got to stop for a moment, right? We've got to figure out a way to put what the Bible is telling us into sort of comprehensible language, something to sum it all up. And the word that Christians have invented to describe the Bible's teaching, right? It is a word that's not in the Bible. It's a word that we invented to describe what is taught in the Bible. It's the word you've heard, the Trinity. The three unity is what the word Trinity means. Our reading from Galatians, we haven't yet talked about, at least I haven't yet, the third in that Trinity, but our reading from Galatians introduced us to the third in that three unity, the Spirit. Paul writes there, and then also in his second letter to the Corinthians, the Lord is the Spirit. And this Spirit gets referred to with a few different names in the Bible, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and as here in Galatians, the Spirit of God's Son as well, the Spirit of Christ at other times. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't something we can understand. We can express it. God is one, yet God exists in three persons. There we go. That's the Trinity expressed. That doesn't mean that the Trinity has been understood. It can't be. It's an incomprehensible statement. It's expressible, right? We can speak what the Bible says, but it doesn't fit in our heads. It can't. It's a statement about the nature of the almighty creator of all things, the the one who brought the universe into existence, who rules over every moment of life. How could we think that we could understand even what we can express about such a transcendent being? We can recognize this truth. This is what the Bible tells us. We don't have to worry then about 
whether we understand it, whether we've wrapped our arms around God, because it's instead God who wraps his arms around us. We don't have to grab onto him, he's taking hold of us. The doctrine of the Trinity serves as a great comfort for us. And I, just as I don't need to understand the process by which the, the nice puffy weighted blanket that I sleep under at night came to be, right? I don't need to understand everything about the way that this blanket was uh, gathered out of fabrics and where those fabrics came from and what the factory was. I don't need to understand all that to be comforted by the, the presence of this blanket. I don't need to understand the Trinity to nonetheless derive comfort and joy and peace from knowing this about God. And let me explain why the doctrine of the Trinity comforts us. When we come to the realization that God is a plurality and that Jesus was sent into the world by his Father, we could, if we are not grounded on again the doctrine of the Trinity, the three unity, we could make some mistaken assumptions about the character of God, the attitude of God, his feelings. Right? We could think, for instance, that the Father that the Bible is talking about must be some kind of angry, vengeful, wrathful, tyrant, cruel, and jealous. Someone that we should be afraid of. Someone who, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus was standing in between us and him, hey, you know, back off of them, he would lay us flat. Another mistaken assumption that we could have may be that God sent an unwilling Jesus into the world. That Jesus, perhaps, was not particularly excited about this mission who on which he was sent by his father. That Jesus perhaps did not do what he did so much out of love for us, but out of simple filial obedience to his father. But because God is one, what the father desired, the son also desired, and vice versa. The father desired to reconcile you to him, so did Christ his son. The son was willing to enter this world and die for your reconciliation to take place. The father was willing for him to do so. Right? Jesus loved and loves you, therefore you can know that the Father loved and loves you. That's comfort that we find in the doctrine of the Trinity and knowing that our God is one. There's some more comfort that we can find in the doctrine of the Trinity. God was the one born into the world to be your Savior substitute. Right? Your creator entered into creation to rescue you. The God who calls you to be perfect as he is perfect is the God who died on a cross so that you could be forgiven. God is not separate from Jesus. Jesus is God. When we understand this about his person and who he is, we take great comfort from that. So what does it mean again that Jesus is the Son of God? It means that God himself is your Savior. It means that in the life of Jesus, in particular, you have recorded for you the character of God. And what is God like? You read the life of Jesus and you find out what God is like because he's God. The incomprehensible king of the universe, a being whom we cannot understand, who, who we cannot wrap our brains around, is someone whose words we can read, is someone who we can see interacting with people is someone who showed love and patience and also at times uh, sternness and rebuke. He became a person. What great comfort we can take out of this fact. There's a second question that we want to answer this morning. What does it mean that 
as Paul says here, we are sons of God. That's the second half of our text this morning from Paul and Galatians. I'll read that again. Jesus was born, Paul says, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Important word there, adoption. Jesus is God's son in his essence, in his very being. He has always existed from eternity as the son of God. That's not true of you or me. It's not true, firstly, because we are created beings. We don't have the same status as Jesus in our essence. He has always existed as God's son. We all started at some point. Jesus never started. And secondly, it's simply not true because we are by nature separated from God in sin. We are, Paul says, under the law and in need of redemption. The law, that's an important concept in the Bible. And for a broad definition, law means everything God expresses about how humans should live life. Every word of the Bible that speaks to us about what we should do, what we shouldn't do, how we should be, how we should not be, that's a word of the law. And the law is not optional. The law is not sort of what you'd call a set of best practices. Like you might get recommendations if you run a business and somebody might tell you, hey, here's some best practices about how to do your accounting, about how to run your HR department. And you're free to implement those or not. The law is not best practices. Nor is the law recommendations. The law, summarized in various ways throughout the Bible, but Jesus expresses it simply during one exchange with his opponents. Love God above all things. Love your neighbor at all times. If we ever fail to execute on that, we've broken God's law. And we all have, at various times, in various ways, failed to execute on that. For every instance of our love that we can call to mind, we know we can also call to mind instances of selfishness, of pride, of cruelty, of contempt for another person. If you can't personally call them to mind, uh, one of the recommendations I always give people if they're having trouble wrapping their head around that concept, am I really sinful? I tell them, why don't you go call an ex of yours and ask them, hey, do I do things that are bad sometimes? I'm sure that they could probably give you an honest answer. Why can we not carry out the requirements of God's law, right, with the perfection that God requires? Well, the Bible here and elsewhere says that our natural state is as slaves to sin. Sin is the opposite of love. God calls us to love him and to love our neighbor. Our natural sinful minds call us to sin against God and against our neighbor. And as slaves to that master, by nature, we obey it. So this mission that Jesus undertook during his life here on earth was redemption. What does that mean? Redeem. To redeem something is to make an exchange for an object or a service under particular terms, right? An example, you can redeem this coupon for a free car wash. That exchange constitutes the agreed-upon terms. The agreed-upon terms in the work of Jesus are these sinners, human beings who are by nature slaves to sin and separated from God, are redeemed, purchased by Jesus. The payment was his human life, the, the life that we mark its beginning at Christmas and which had truly begun, of course, nine months earlier in Mary's womb. Jesus, 33-some years on earth, came to their end on a Roman cross, and that death 
was the payment which redeemed humanity, which reconciled us to God. But that's not where God's grace toward us ended. Right? We had been slaves to sin, property of sin. Through Jesus' death, we become a God's property is the exchange that's occurring. But Paul tells us here that God in his unfathomable love, that would have been grace enough. But as John tells us in Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. We're not left simply as God's property, as slaves of God, as we had been slaves to sin. Instead, God frees us and then adopts us as his very children. Jesus speaks about this loving action of God throughout the Gospel of John. Here are some words of his from John chapter 8, verse 35. A slave has no permanent place in the family. If that was how we remained in the family of God as his slaves, his property, we could have no assurance about belonging to him forever. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but Jesus says a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Later, in chapter 14, Jesus says, My father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. You'll live as part of the family. You will be family. Paul summarizes what Jesus did in those words we heard earlier. He redeemed us that we might receive adoption to sonship. Why adoption to sonship, specifically? In the ancient world, simply only sons could inherit. We wouldn't need necessarily then to have the same distinction made for us today if the, the scriptures, if Christ had been born in our time and if the scriptures were being written in our time, we wouldn't necessarily need to talk about adoption to sonship. Daughters can inherit today too. So Paul's making a particular point in what he's saying at the time. All believers, male or female, are sons of God in this particular sense. We can expect to receive an inheritance from God. There are scriptures that speak of believers as distinctly sons and daughters. In 2 Corinthians 6, for example, Paul records this promise from God. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. When God speaks of believers in various points as sons and daughters, what's in focus is his love for us, his relationship with us, his care for us as a father cares for his children. When the Bible specifies sons as the status that all believers have, we're being focused on the legal right we have to expect an inheritance from our Father. Our status as God's sons, as his heir children, it's not intrinsic, innate to us as it is for Jesus. We are sons by adoption. But that does not make this status any less real. Indeed, it's Here's what Paul's point is here. It's Jesus' inherent, innate status as God's son that gives us assurance of our status as God's sons. Jesus is and will always be the son of God and his spirit lives in our hearts by faith. Paul says the spirit that calls out Abba, Father. Paul's doing that. Uh, why, why these two names for God, right? Abba, Aramaic, Father. Uh, Pater in Greek, Father. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, whoever we are, the point is, we belong to God. He is our Father, we his children. How did that occur? Our baptisms united us to Christ. Another way that that occurred, Christ bears the same flesh and blood that we bear. 
And because Jesus is God's son, we can be certain that we are God's sons. And the inheritance that's then waiting for us, guaranteed to us through Jesus, is the world made new, where our God, our Father, our brother, will dwell with us forever. Where we will dwell one with one another forever in, in perfect harmony, in perfect joy. It'll be the greatest family Christmas that will ever take place, and it'll never end. Merry Christmas, brothers and sisters. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today on Grace of God Sermon Cast. We hope this episode has been a source of inspiration and reflection for you. As we wrap up, we want to remind you that Grace of God Lutheran Church is here for you, and we invite you to be a part of our community. If you have any questions or want to learn more about our services or simply connect with us, you can visit our website at graceofgod.church. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to stay updated on future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's content, please consider leaving us a review. Your feedback means a lot to us and helps others discover the message we're sharing. Before we go, a quick reminder that our Sunday worship services are held at 510 Deer Park Avenue, Dix Hills, New York, at 9.30 a.m. every Sunday. We would be delighted to have you join us in person and experience the warmth and fellowship of our community. Thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, may the grace of God be with you always.